If you have a kid in first to fifth grade on September 27th at 6 p.m., they are going to do a glow party. That's not glamorous ladies of wrestling party. Glow party is where they're going to do black lights and you have your kids, you know, wear things that react with black light and they got glow sticks. And t- I don't really know what happens there except there is adult supervision, which is a good thing. Uh, and your kids are going to do a bunch of games to kick off the new school year and stuff. So if you, if you, they have friends who don't attend Elman, that's still fine. They can all come. And, and go to the glow party. Hey, welcome to Element if you are new. Uh, I don't typically steal your uh, dinnerware, but yeah. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you've taken one before and it's fallen apart, you can have another one. That's, that's what they're there for. Uh, if you would like, on all the communion tables throughout the room, there are these. Uh, these are sermon notes. On the inside, you will get some questions and notes to reflect on what we talk about today. On the back, you'll get the announcements that Steve also talked about as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10. And he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. And vanity is meaninglessness or vapor. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand your sovereignty in all areas of life. And that as we look around and see some things in the world that we don't understand, that we would still trust you in the midst of that. And we would walk forward honoring who you are by how we live and reflect that great love which we have first been given. Teach us to be a people who live for you, knowing that in the end you make all things beautiful in your time. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, or really the last third. Uh, We did the first 20 weeks up until June of this year of the book of Ecclesiastes. We took a break for the summer where we did a series called I Believe in Miracles, and now we're finishing the last third of the book over the next 12 weeks. Uh, We're calling the series the Existential Hangover because the word existential relates to existence. Philosophically speaking, it's concerned with human existence. And Ecclesiastes seems to always be asking this question of now what with our lives? Now we've, we've gone here, we've done this, now what? And I've told you that Solomon is a guy who had it all, bought it all, did it all, built it all, kind of won it all, accomplished it all. And now he gets to a point where he says, but now what? And so it's the headache that comes from getting everything you think you ever wanted under the the sun, or maybe chasing something you think you always wanted and you never got it, and saying, well, what if I did get it? Well, then what? I'd still wake up the next day, and I would still be me, and then what do I do then? And so Ecclesiastes is meant to be advice on practical, real-world, everyday living that lifts up an ideology that looks beyond the mortal shell to what goes on into true eternity. Now, over the past 200 years, there's been this bitter fight between two ideologies in our world. They have vastly different opinions of the problems in our world and then how to fix them. Uh, Thomas Sowell, who is an American economist and social theorist, explained that this conflict between the political left and the political right, not that this is a political sermon, it's not at all, I'm just trying to explain what this looks like, it isn't necessarily about candidates. It typically comes down to varying perceptions about human nature. Sol describes the two visions as what he would call constrained versus unconstrained. And so the constrained vision sees human uh, nature as basically selfishly sinful, and those that hold their position put their hope in constraining our sin through various laws that a government will put out. The unconstrained position perceives this human condition in optimistic terms, uh, as human beings as being basically good. This is like the Star Trek kind of theology, if you're into Star Trek, in that we are capable of possible 
possible perfection in this life. So within that perspective, perfection is achieved through a vast social institutional structure like public education and government programs and social services that are all designed by people who are more enlightened to help those who aren't more enlightened cure the ills of the world. And so these two conflicts tend to come into conflict everywhere in our society, no matter the issue. Gun control, abortion, drug legalization, welfare, animal rights, homelessness, college tuition, it all comes down usually on opposite sides. If you ever wonder why, why can't we get anything done in Washington, D.C.? Well, it typically comes down to those two ideologies. And first off, I am grossly, grossly oversimplifying this. And secondly, you should always be thankful for the gridlock that actually is in our government. The founding fathers designed an adversarial system so we wouldn't have so many laws that we lived under tyranny. So when they fight, be like, I'm okay with that. I'll let them figure that out. If you ever volunteer for an organization like Element or school or sports teams or maybe extra hours at work, it is never easy to get something done in organizations because people are involved in organizations. you got like people like you and me. When I hear the word committee, I swear I want to pop a brain vessel in my head with an aneurysm because it makes me sick to my stomach. I have been on a jury, and the worst part of the jury is not the trial. It's trying to get 11 other people in a jury room to agree with me. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate Thomas Sowell, and I appreciate uh, the words that he said, but I think it is a simplification because he doesn't see the larger problem. I agree that humanity is not the answer. I agree that our three-pound fallen brains will not solve the world's problems. I also think a bunch of laws isn't going to fix it either because it comes down to what Solomon in the Bible talks about over and over and over. The problem in the world is the problem that is in us, and that is namely our sinfulness. And I do believe that because of sin, we do need government and institutions to protect us from sin perpetrated by others. This is why we have police departments. Uh, This is why we have uh, battered women's shelters and things like that. However, those systems and institutions that are put in place to uphold righteousness and oppose tyranny are also deeply flawed because they're led by people, and that's the issue. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Figuring out how to work in the world through its crooked systems becomes frustrating. It becomes cumbersome. This is what we talked about last week. So Solomon starts to tackle this in his wisdom as a king, but also as a person who is sinful himself. He's going to provide insight that helps you start to navigate through life in those fallen systems and institutions that we are a part of. And to get this a bit, you've got to think of what your job or uh, your church or whatever organization you're a part of. And what he will do is say, in the midst of all the evil things that people do around us, our goal should not be to look down at people as the solution to the problems. We don't look down at despair and man's failures. We're meant to look up to what God will ultimately do. That doesn't mean we don't take stands against evil, but we look at and trust God for what he will ultimately do in all things, even when we don't exactly know what's up. Okay? So the last verse we looked at last, Ecclesiastes 8 and 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then he goes directly into verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Again, meaningless. It's vapor. He would remind you is don't put too much hope in naive leaders. And he knows that all too well because he himself was one. And he will talk about how certain people hurt other people with their power. Uh, maybe you've had a job and one of your co-workers got promoted to this position where they're over everybody else and they're just a total knucklehead and drive everybody crazy because they got too much power. Maybe you live in a place that has a homeowners association. And, and that crazy neighbor decided, I'm going to get on the board of the and HOA. Then they make it to the head of the HOA and they're like a little Hitler running around with all their power. People are naturally sinners. And guess what? 
They don't get better with more power. They usually get worse. For some reason, we always think that people like politicians or other people around us tend to be better than we are. My dad sent me an email the week I was writing this message, and he talked about becoming an atheist. My dad's not a Christian, never been a Christian, but he's like, I'm going to become an atheist. He's, he's very new age and believed in reincarnation and stuff like that before. And, and I said, why? He said, you Christians. And I'm like, are you Christian? Well, what did I do, right? He knows I'm a pastor. He's been here a couple times. You know, he's, he goes, you're pretty good. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means, but all right. But he goes, but he goes you Christians. And I, go, and I go, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, he goes, he goes, I'm not, he goes, I'm not even talking about policies. I'm just talking about lifestyle. He goes, that Trump, he goes, all of you evangelicals overlook all the stupid things that he did, and yet they were all over Bill Clinton for the exact same things. I'm going to become an atheist. And I'm like, well, first off, that's a horrible reason to become an atheist. <laughs> and, and secondly, what you're doing is you're just doubling down on the problem, which is humanity. What you're saying is humanity has an issue. Why double down on humanity? And he's like, I don't know, but I don't know, right? Think about this. Where do we get a lot of our holidays from? What we do is we lift up men as if they're perfect, right? Uh, George Washington, right? Guy did a lot of good stuff, but he had slaves. Lincoln held seances. Martin Luther King did a lot of great things, but he committed adultery. Christopher Columbus most likely participated in the slave trade. And we have holidays for them. And don't get me wrong, I think we, we lift up and value achievements that have been done. You acknowledge the culture that they actually came from. But we tend to come and project onto leaders things that are not real. I stand in front of you on a Sunday morning at my best. And if this is my best, imagine how bad my worst is, right? Here, I am in control of a lot of the circumstances. The sound, the mic, not always your heckling, but, you know, I'm in charge of some things. Uh, But when I'm driving in my car and I'm not in charge of the person in front of me, my words may not be the same as they are in front of you on a Sunday morning. When my wife and I fight, my demeanor could very well be somewhat less than acceptable. Uh, Other pastors have told me before that I should only share my stories with you of all of my victories over the flesh, right? The problem is I don't have that many, all right? And when I get in a fight with my flesh, I typically get beat up. You know, I had someone, when we, when we started Element, I had somebody say to me, you don't want to give the impression that you're a sinner. And I said, it's tough not to, (laughs) because I am one, right? We, we hold people to this level of perfection or closer than we are. Then you're going to set yourself up for being let down over and over and over. Yes, we respect authority, but we also need to also stand against evil. And we must realize that people are not Jesus. And don't worry, I haven't done something stupid. I'm not going to drop some bombshell on you today or something like that. We just have to be real, realistic about this. We are really a sick culture because we love to take people and put them on pedestals, and then when they mess up, we love to tear them to pieces. Uh, Britney Spears, Lindsay Lohan, Michael Jackson, the only reason people watched their lives was to see what next new crazy thing was going to happen and how they imploded. We should be careful we don't take joy in human misery. You, you have that boss, that HOA guy that drives you crazy. If their life implodes and they self-destruct, you should not be happy about that. You should be sad for their brokenness. You should want them to come to Jesus that changes their lives. We have all been let down because we expect more than people than people can give. And again, I'm not saying we overlook evil and don't stand against this. I'm just saying we've got to be realistic about who people are. Solomon was the wisest guy who ever lived, probably next to Jesus. And he looks at his own life, and he writes this about himself, that he had worshipped false gods that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. There's a lot of lust in his life. They neglected his duties. He committed many sins. And there were lots of people who loved to see him go up first and then loved to see him fall and fail at the end. And he has this sobering realization. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. 
And he mostly likely realizes he's one of those wicked people at that point. Solomon probably either attended a funeral for a friend or somebody new, or he's riding Ecclesiastes and looks out the window, and there's a funeral procession going by, and he sees, and it shocks him into reality. Charles Spurgeon said this, The sight of a funeral is a very healthy thing for the soul. Benedictine monk Columbus Stewart said this, Awareness of mortality exerts a unique power to focus the mind and heart on essentials. It is so easy in our lives to get distracted by pleasures and problems of everyday life that we give little thought to the future and the end of our days. But when you stand beside a grave, it's meant to bring you back to look at what God is actually going to do. And we're probably a lot closer to death than we thought we were, especially when I'm using power tools or something like that, that death is coming for us. Solomon looks around at the evil around us in the world, how we venerate people. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. The reality of death that he saw around him helped him to understand and accept something that was troubling his soul, to look forward to what God is doing. What was troubling him was that he looked and he saw bad things happening to good people and bad people living in blessing for some reason, and he didn't understand it. Why do the people who do good suffer and the people who do evil prosper? Why does that happen? And that's really a common question for people today when they talk about God. If God is just in this world, then shouldn't God judge the the wicked? Shouldn't he do something about it? A couple things in that. We are the ones who think we get to define what wicked is, and we can decide what justice is and all that kind of stuff. Solomon looks around, and he sees all these evil things taking place around him. He's a lot like the psalm writer who in Psalm 73 verse 3 admits, he says that he was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, God's enemies seem to get all the blessings. They make more money, they have more power, they experience more pleasure than people who try to do the right thing, what God says. So Solomon has to deal with this. Ecclesiastes 8, 11 to 13, he says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That is still true. This could be in two different ways. It could be when the government doesn't bring about uh, a thing for a crime speedily, or it could be how people just go through life. It doesn't look like God does anything about it. But then Solomon turns a corner, and this is what he says. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What he says is, eventually, God is going to sort it all out one way or another. And I I am going to talk about that. But I want to keep underscoring this idea that if you walk around this world today and you try and keep score, it will look like the bad guys are winning. Do you ever watch the news? The people who have all the money, sex, fame, power, they don't spend four hours a day in Bible study. You know, and like, like Hugh Hefner, the guy who found a Playboy, he didn't spend four hours a day in Bible study, and if he did, he misunderstood all the passages he read, right? But, but rock stars, sports stars, actors, they do the craziest things. They get hooked on drugs, they end up on video doing some crazy thing that if we got caught on video for, we'd be in jail, and they get off because they have more money than they know what to do with. 2017 Forbes list of moneymakers. Tom Cruise, $43 million. Robert Downey Jr., $48 million. Jackie Chan, $49 million. I'm okay with that because I like Jackie Chan. Uh, Netflix, in 2017, gave Adam Sandler $50.5 million for a four-movie deal. Vin Diesel, $54.5 million. I am Groot. I could do that. I could, the Rock, $65 million. Emma Stone, $26 million. So, yeah, there's a disparity there. Uh, but Adele, $80 million. 
Can you imagine getting paid that? You ever been in a place in your life where you wonder how you're going to make rent or the gas payment or electricity the next month that's coming up? And yet every year, Forbes puts out this list where you can find a few knuckleheads on it that do way too many drugs and don't seem to struggle, little Wayne, right? Why does it work this way? Because inst- Sorry, was that too close to home for somebody? I mean, come on. Okay? Institutions and jobs are made up of crooked people. When he says they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, it's not entirely certain which holy place he's talking about. He could be talking about Jerusalem as the great city, as a city of God, but he could more specifically be talking about the temple itself in Jerusalem. Martin Luther, the church reformer, believed that the people who go in and out of the holy place were the priests who led worship at the house of God. Which, if that's what he's actually saying, that means the wicked people were their pastors. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. Whoever they were, wherever they went, they would come and go in freedom. People would sing their praises and say how wonderful they were when they were complete idiots. Most translations give the impression that the wicked people were popular and that this is actually talking more about their funerals and at the end of their days they were praised in the cities. Despite their wickedness, people would say all kinds of wonderful things about them when they were eulogized and they gloss over all the garbage of their lives. Like you would have a funeral for Hitler and someone would say, oh, he was the best painter. Let's remember him for his art. Something like that. My friend Trevor Carpenter uh, died a few years ago. Some of you knew Trevor. And Trevor and I talked about this a little bit before he died, about different things that, you know, he would really want to have shared at his funeral. And Trevor's just the guy that's like, you know, talk horrible about me, because I'm a horrible dude. And I'm like, yeah, you are, right? Because if you're not Trevor, he was opinionated. He could be mean. He could run over you and not listen to you. But Trevor loved Jesus. He really did. And he trusted in Jesus for salvation and his life. And so we had this funeral in Carpinteria. And I went down to this funeral, and I did the eulogy in the middle, and I, and I wrapped up about the gospel at the end. And when I talked about Trevor and the gospel, I talked about Trevor could be a total pain in the butt. And most people know that. Trevor could run over you. Trevor wouldn't listen to you half the time. But yet, when Trevor, his love for God, when you called him on something, he would be like, you're right. And Jesus is calling me to this. And, and there's this huge tenderness that would start to take place in his life. And, and so I talked about that, right? I, I think if Trevor was there, I'd walk off and he'd be like, high five, way to go. I look terrible. Jesus looked good. Great, right? Oh, people got mad at me. How dare you say something? Because I needed to be honest because we have to be honest about who we are and who God is and what God does in us. We are not perfect. We are not great. Jesus is and Jesus rescues us and that's what I talked about. One of the things that Solomon talks about in this is how the wicked are treated and how justice is delayed. Now, everyone says nice things about them even when they die. And he says that makes many people want to do evil because they want to be like them. Solomon calls it meaningless. Theodore Beza said it's repugnant to reason. Philip Ryken calls it absurd injustice. So how does Solomon reconcile all of this? What Solomon does is he stops at this point pointing under the sun to the world that we create and he starts to point beyond under the sun to the eternal. And he says, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. See, those who walk with God, God knows them. Those who are against God, God knows them. And it may not seem like it, but God is involved. And this is where faith and trust comes in and who he is. You ever heard someone say, trust in Jesus and your life will go well? They lied, okay? They lied. They did. Because the people in the Bible who we look up to are usually poor and then they're killed. Look at Jesus himself, right? Jesus was poor, homeless, never traveled more than 30 miles from his hometown. Then he's murdered. It looks like an underachiever story, but it's not until the empty tomb. And it ends up exactly the way that God intended. In the middle, it doesn't look so good. He is betrayed and he is abandoned. But what Solomon says is true. Ultimately, it goes better for those who trust God. That's where we have faith. 
Solomon is showing in his view that when we operate in unrighteousness, we take advantage of God's mercy. The reason God does not throw lightning bolts from heaven and burn us where we stand is that God is patient. That has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. In Ecclesiastes 34, verse 6, God talks about himself, and he says of himself that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what you'll see is Israel pick up these words throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and they will say this of God over and over again, that God is a loving God. And God gives us time to repent, return to who he is. And the delays that God takes are always meant to lead us to humbleness centered in his grace. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We are a people who typically abuse the patience of God by making an excuse for immorality. What we want is we want forgiveness versus permission, right? And this is why, personally, I'm not ever angry at atheists at all. I, don't, I have compassion on them because they operate in faith and belief just as much as Christians do. Uh, William Provine at, is at Cornell University. He's one of the professors there. And he wrote this book a bit ago about atheism and Darwinism and why he, he believes the things that he does. And, and this is what he says. When you die, you're not going to be surprised because you're going to be completely dead. Now, if I find myself aware after I'm dead, I'm going to be really surprised. But at least I'm going to go to hell where I won't have to have all those grinning preachers from Sunday morning. Okay. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end of me. So what's his response to this? So then he says, there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, since we know that we are not going to live after we die. There is no reward for suffering in this world. You live and you die. Now, in this book, he will give you a long list of things that he knows, but what they really are are just things that he believes. That's what they are, because none of them are capable of rational or scientific proof. But this, but the worldview that he expands and talks about is what Solomon warns about in the book of Ecclesiastes. When people do not believe in who God is, they misunderstand why life matters. Their foundation goes away for righteous living, and they turn their hearts towards evil. That's what Solomon's saying. And so he says one of the best ways to regain God's perspective on good and evil is to do what he did. Go to someone's grave, especially if it was somebody evil that seemed to get away with a whole lot of stuff. Because what happens after we die? Solomon says God is the ultimate judge. He is going to bring things about. There is a final righting of wrongs. But the problem is we tend to look at everybody else as if they're the evil ones and we are not. See, Solomon is convinced that God's going to make a right of all the things that happen. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear, uh, fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong their days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. If you take that out of context, it, you could think that might reference our present existence. But you look at the verses before where he talks about death. The verses after, he's going to talk about injustice in our earthly systems. And so it seems much more likely he's pointing to ultimate justice in the ultimate future. He says there is a lot of injustice, but there will be a final justice coming, the justice of God, which I want to talk about in just a second. But let me take a quick step back here. And we have to understand something as we walk through this and say, those are the evil people and I'm the good guys. We all sound like Solomon at times. We say, why do bad things happen to good people? And I've told you this before. We have this idea that there are good people and bad people out there. And the bad ones need bad things to happen to them. And we define who's bad and we define the bad things. And if we made a list of good people, typically who's at the top is like Jesus and Mother Teresa. And yet who's at the bottom? Who's the worst? Well, that's Hitler and the executive that thought up boy bands. They're right there, right? And then where do we put us? We put ourselves somewhere right in the middle, right? And then us and everybody above us is the good guys, and everybody below us are the bad guys, and we have this vertical sliding scale. 
The problem with that is that not how, is that's not how the scriptures speak about righteousness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means there is God's perfection. That is God's standard. And that's it. And we all fall short. And that we are all the wicked that die that Solomon talks about. That's the reality. The good news of the gospel is that at the cross, it's not that vertical ladder we climb up. The cross essentially flattens everything. And the only thing that stands above the flat horizontal landscape of our sin is the cross of Christ. In the Old Testament, God will go out of his way to show many of the people who were the good guys and who we claim were the good guys are completely immoral in tons of their decisions. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, Solomon himself. Many of the bad guys in the Bible end up looking more moral than a lot of the believers. The scriptures are constantly juxtaposing the immorality of believers with the morality of unbelievers to make a point. And the point is morality has nothing to do with salvation. Now, should people who believe in Jesus be moral? Yes. Yes or no? You only got two chances. 50-50. Go with yes. Okay, that's a good one, right? But we are saved in spite of our morality, not because of it. And if you go to that question, why do bad things happen to good people? It really should be, why do good things happen to anybody? Really. It's only because of God's grace. Because we have this idea that there are some people who deserve to be blessed because they've done the right thing. The scriptures show us that God cannot only bless the good guys because there aren't any. So what God does is he takes the bad guys and he changes us to be his children by calling us to relationship with himself. If you go through the gospel class, it starts today. Steve's going to start it talking about scripture. The fourth one is about salvation. I, I get to teach that one and I love talking about it. Uh, I have at the end of this, tire, so I'm going to steal my own thunder, but at the end of that, I have everybody turn to 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And this is what John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, we have this thing where admitting unworthiness or sinfulness in our lives is really hard in front of other people because we have been taught our entire lives, you hide that. You don't let people see it. We want to argue against anything that would make us, quote-unquote, unworthy. But when we, when we believe, we want to even believe that our mistakes aren't as bad as other people say that they are. We want to think that other people hurt us. We don't hurt other people. But when we acknowledge our sin, John continues, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Then if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What God does throughout the scriptures is he will testify to our sinfulness. God's spirit will testify about our sinfulness. But he also testifies about his own graciousness. He has told us that he so loved the world that he did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Jesus, God in the flesh, lives the life we should have lived. And then he gives that righteousness to us as a gift. Then he dies the death that we had been condemned to die, and by so doing, puts away our death forever. Now, in the scriptures, advocate is a legal term. It refers to somebody who will argue your case before the bar of justice. So an advocate would be like, oh, they're innocent, Uh, they didn't do this. Jesus can't argue our innocence because... We aren't innocent, right? And then so an advocate would then go, oh, but they have other qualities. They're typically a really good person, so overlook it because of their nice guyness and all that. Our advocate, Jesus, does no such thing. Jesus never argues for our goodness. What he argues is his righteousness in our place. Jesus does not argue for our worthiness. He argues his substitution. It's that we may not be worthy to be forgiven, but he is worthy to forgive us. And in 1 John 1, 9, when it says that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, it doesn't say that God is merciful and kind to forgive us our sins, though God is merciful and kind, because that's why Jesus came. But what is the basis of God's forgiveness is not mercy. It is justice. It is what Solomon 
points to is what Solomon talked about. There will be a final righting of wrongs. There will be justice. God will bring about justice. And so God doesn't just like not look at our sin. The full penalty for sin was laid upon Jesus. There is justice. There is. And God's justice is fulfilled. Jesus pays the full penalty for our sin. Not an ounce of judgment remains. And that is the beauty of the good news of the gospel. All that Solomon looked forward to and wanted to see is found in Jesus. And if you think of Jesus standing before God in front of you going like, oh, no, 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 God, you know, give him some more leniency. Uh, they'll, be, they'll do better next time. That's going to give you little comfort at all because one day you're like, God's, you know, his mercy is going to run out and he's just going to scorch me where I stand. This is why Jesus does not appeal to God for mercy on your behalf. He appeals to justice because Jesus has satisfied all the claims against us. And he says to the Father, I paid the full price for this sin. I took the penalty that is due all of them so they can get the righteousness and credit that's due me. And if you are someone who believes in Jesus, that's the confidence you have before God. That's the confidence. That's right there. That he has actually paid for our sin. He's not just winking and trying not to look at it. He pays for it. We don't have to hope we're forgiven. We know we are because our standing for God has nothing to do with our worthiness but the worthiness of our advocate who is Jesus who stands in our place. He was forsaken. We get brought in. And this is why there's only one hope for sinful people and it is Jesus. And that's what Solomon is pointing to. This is all that Solomon longed for. That the good news of the beauty of the gospel is our, our rescue that God says, yes, there will be an ultimate justice, and the ultimate justice was it was meted out towards Christ as he takes all of our sin upon himself and gives us righteousness. So often in our world today, we want to argue our own particular constraint versus unconstrained and all that stuff, and what the scripture tells us to speak about is the good news of the gospel, the rescue of who we are, that, that we don't have to be a people who see the world through a grid of these crazy ideologies. We get to see the world through a grid that is first gospel-centered. God's rescue. God has spoken. We, we are messed up sinful people. Yes, we got it. But he has also rescued us from that sin that we involved our lives in. And he's brought us back to himself. And that is just the beauty and the goodness and the grace of God. This is why every week we want to take you guys to a place of communion where you break that cracker and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Mind you, it was a body that was broken and his blood that was shed because that's what we remember. That's what we live in. What Christ has done to rescue and save us, that is what changes us. Our focus on the gospel. We must be a people who become gospel-centered like Steve was talking about. You know, one of Helmut's things is to turn community into gospel-centered community. We want all of our friendships that people learn how to live and deal with that element to be seen through the lens of that gospel. Because then you can have different ideologies and political views and stuff, but you come together first because your first focus is on Jesus himself and what he did to rescue us. We must be a people who live out the understanding of the great grace of the gospel. This is all that Solomon's kind of running for at the end of the book. I swear this could have been the last week in Ecclesiastes, right? It's a great landing point. But we're only halfway through this chapter, so we're going to keep going. But whatever. Uh, it's, it's, it's just beautiful. Um, the band's going to come up. Sorry. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place today where you feel like you can never be close to God, you're always worried that God's going to send a lightning bolt to strike your life, and you're going to 
you know, fry like an egg on a hot day or something like that. They would love to pray and talk to you about that, to understand the great grace that is given to us in the person of Christ, his, his rescue of us, that we can be honest about the people around us, where they sin and fall. We don't have to hold people up to some crazy perfection standard. Again, not that we don't stand against evil or anything like that, but, but you don't have to hold people up to the standard because Christ is the one who fulfills everything for us. So we trust him. We don't look to people to save us. We look to Jesus to save us. And that changes then how we will live every part of our life. Um, there's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much uh, to us, so giving is part of our worship. There's some snacks outside. Grab some, take some sermon notes. Maybe talk with some other people this week you know, about some of those things. Where in your life do you, do you just feel like God's waiting to smack you? That God's got his you know, big spatula spoon. He's like, oh, I'm going to step out of line. I know it. Whoop, pow, and he's just waiting for you to do it, right? And instead of seeing the great mercy and grace that God has bestowed upon us because of his rescue of us. Because when we speak about the gospel, that's what we speak about. Christ's death and resurrection. And everything that happens on the backside of that is all the results of God's graciousness given to us. So let's be a people who learn to love and worship Him in hope and truth and life and grace that center upon what He has done. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I want to thank You for being a God who, who rescues, a God who speaks truth, who does not leave us where we are, but calls us into new things that are centered upon who You are. And I ask that as we walk through our lives and we don't understand a lot of things, why certain people have the authority in our lives that they do, that we in the end will be able to come to a place where we walk forward always trusting you in all things, that we'd understand that no matter where we've gone, no matter what has been done, you are a God that never lets us go. That even when it feels like our our lives are covered like a cloud that is covering the sun and we walk around in this dusky haze and don't know which way is forward, that you still in the midst of that have never let us go. And you lead us and guide us and always call us back to your saving grace. And I ask that our understanding of that great grace that which you have saved us changes us in turn to be able to live out in this world in your name. Not that we would ever make our salvation just about us, but that we'd make it about becoming your ambassador to this world and taking that great love with which you have first loved us and beginning to love others around us. That we would begin to show who you are by how we live out the great grace that we have received. Teach us to be a people who come to the place where we understand that our righteousness is always found fully in you and not in ourselves and not in the things that we have done so that we can live in great freedom, honoring you with all that we are. And we ask this in your son's gracious, good, and saving name. Amen.